The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 9 to the chief musician to the tune of Death of the Son a psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory is perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Meditation. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Okay, we've got uh, Leviticus twenty three fifteen through 22 today. It's the Feast of the Lord weeks. So starting in verse 15, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as their grain offering and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering and two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of a peace offering. The priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. 
and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. Verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. When you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Though disputed by some, for all intents and purposes, the church age began on the day of Pentecost in the year A.D. 32. Some people say that it didn't actually begin on Pentecost. Some people say it didn't happen in A.D. 32. But that's where I stand on both of those issues. Fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ is when it occurred. Today, we're going to look at the significance of this occurrence, how it was prefigured in the Old Testament, and how it is fulfilled in the New. We'll also look at its significance in our own lives. Before we do, there's something we should understand concerning the giving of the Spirit, and that is to be derived from a proper interpretation of the Bible. There are a million things to know about interpreting the Bible. But I'm going to give you a few simple rules to get you started. I bring them up from time to time in the Bible studies, and today's sermon is a great day to bring them up again. When you're evaluating verses in Scripture, you should constantly ask yourself the first two rules and make sure you carefully apply the third. First, is this prescriptive? Does it actually prescribe something for me to do? Or two, is this descriptive? Does it merely describe something for me? And three, what is the context of what I am reading or studying? Let's review. Prescriptive, descriptive, and context, context, context. Context is king, and we simply cannot rip verses out of context without producing a pretext. It is certainly the greatest source of error in Christianity. Most error comes from using a passage which only describes something as if it were prescribing something. This type of error covers most of the bad doctrine that revolves around what happened at Pentecost and how we are to apply it to our lives right now. To help you get this right, I'll give you an actual example to consider. Before we got into today's sermon, I read you Leviticus 23, verses 15 through 22. For you... As a Christian, are those passages prescriptive or are they descriptive? That's right. They are descriptive. In other words, they describe what is going on, but they prescribe nothing for us to do. If you said that they're prescriptive or they have something for us to do, you have mishandled scripture. You have reinserted the law, which is fulfilled and obsolete. It is annulled in Christ But instead, you took it and you reinserted it into your theology. Further, if you say we are to observe this feast, then you must observe it as it is written. Because there's people all over the world that say that you're obligated to observe the feast of the Lord. And yet, not one of them observes it as it is written here. Okay? Nobody can do so. And nobody does do so. It becomes pick-and-choose theology, and it is a very poor handling of Scripture. Today, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. This is something that happened one time at one location and for a specific reason. It is a non-repeatable event. 
Yes, the Holy Spirit also came upon those in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and on the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, but neither of them occurred on Pentecost. And both were in the presence of Peter to demonstrate that all, Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile, are accepted by God through faith in Christ. After these occurrences, something different now happens when we receive Christ. The Holy Spirit still fills believers today, but according to Paul's writings, which are prescriptive, what Paul writes, his epistles, are our church age doctrine. What he writes there is prescriptive. The Holy Spirit comes at the moment that we profess faith in Jesus. The Spirit now baptizes and fills the believer in all of his fullness at that moment. We cannot get more of the Spirit, but the Spirit can get more of us as we submit to him. Improperly applying Pentecost to our own conversion has led people to bark like dogs, to lie on the ground and kick around like children, and to act in ways that would embarrass even animals. And it has, and I mean this sincerely, brought great discredit upon the name of Jesus Christ and the glorious work of the Holy Spirit in the world. If you're into theatrical Christianity, you should know that it is an insult to the beauty and the majesty of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So please remember and consider always these rules. Prescriptive, descriptive, and context, context, context to the glory of the Lord who called you into his wonderful kingdom. Our text verse, as has been the case with all of the feasts of the Lord, comes from Colossians chapter 2, it's verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival, meaning the feasts of the Lord, or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ Our verses today have all kinds of wonderful things tucked away in them, or they point to all kinds of wonderful things elsewhere in Scripture. And every verse is there leading us to the person and work of Christ. Pentecost was a one-time event, but it has a continuing application even today. Every time a person comes to Christ, the results of that first Pentecost are realized in that person. He is sealed with the Spirit, and his eternal destiny goes from one of separation from God to one of adoption into the family of God. It is true for both Jew and Gentile, and it is a one-time, non-repeatable event. One is sealed upon belief, and that seal is, according to Paul, a guarantee of our future redemption. There is eternal salvation in Christ and it is based on mere faith in what he has done. The things he has done are recorded in the Old Testament in anticipation of his coming, and then they're recorded in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, and in the Epistles to show us that his coming was fully effective in accomplishing those things and reconciling us to God. These are the wonderful truths which are found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Just two thoughts for you today. The first is count 50 days. It's verses 15 through 22. Verse 15, and you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. The day after the Sabbath is speaking of the Sabbath mentioned in verse 11 in the explanation of the Feast of Firstfruits that we saw last week. As we saw, that pictured Christ's resurrection on a Sunday, the first day of the week after the Sabbath. 
The waving of the sheaf of the wave offering look forward to the presentation of Christ Jesus alive and well before the Father. It is from this starting point that a set counting was to take place. Unlike the previous feast, the Feast of First Fruits, no new introductory statement is made here. In verse 9 it said, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, That showed a completely different thought was being introduced into the scheduling of the feast, and that the Feast of First Fruits was a separate thought from that of the Passover. The reason for this was to avoid the mistaken thinking that the Sabbath referred to in verse 11 is the same as the Holy Convocation of verse 8. We went through all of that last week. It is an error very common among scholars and one which has led to a very confused understanding of the timing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All we can go by is what Scripture gives us. Despite the fact that Jewish tradition aligns with the specific timing of Jesus' resurrection on the year he rose, it also had to align with the Sabbath of the week, something that would not happen if the Passover occurred on any day but a Friday. The details are significant, and tradition cannot override Scripture. Now, Without a new introductory statement, we can see that the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Weeks are united in their timing. Though no specific date was given for the Feast of First Fruits, a specific date for the Feast of Weeks is given, and it is based on the Feast of First Fruits. Whenever that would occur each year, these keys are given for us to unlock the specifics of Scripture. When ignored, the doors that we pass through are unscriptural ones. It should be noted now that in a similar manner to Passover and unleavened bread, this is the only other coupling of feasts in Leviticus 23. All others are introduced with introductory thoughts except these. The Feast of First Fruits leads naturally and directly into that of weeks. One points to the next like an arrow heading toward a target. From the resurrection, accounting will now begin. Verse 15 continues, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Sheva Shabbatot, or seven Sabbaths, is a period of 49 days. It is an ancient trick, not using fingers to figure this out. If we know the result and memorize the tables, we can do it in our own heads. Seven times seven is... 49. See, it works every time. The word Sabbath here signifies weeks. It is a synecdoche where the unit stands for the whole. This will be seen in the words of the next verse, and as is seen in Deuteronomy 16, verse 9. Further, this explains the same term in the New Testament as well. Though in Greek, in Matthew 28, verse 1, it says this, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. It is from the day after the Sabbath day and to a day after a Sabbath day. It is pointing to a day during that week, which is a particularly chosen day. Thus we derive from this the name of the feast. It is the Feast of Weeks. We are being directed to a particular day during a particular week, as is seen next. Verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. A period of seven weeks would bring us to about early June on our calendar. The Hebrew says, HaShabbat HaShavit, or the Sabbath, the seventh. There's a definite article in front of Sabbath to ensure that the mistake is not made, that this is merely a period of weeks, but a period of weeks which ends on a Sabbath day. 
It is the day after this Sabbath that the attention is now being directed. Despite the name weeks, the feast actually is more commonly known from the Greek translation of the Old Testament of this verse. One was to count the seven weeks, but more exactingly, it would be 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath on whatever day that Sabbath was. The Greek translation translates the words 50 days as Pentecosta, literally 50. In the New Testament, it is called Pentecoste or Pentecost. On this day, the people, the verb is plural, are required to do something particular. Verse 16 continues, Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. Vehikraftem mincha chadasha la Yehovah. And you shall offer grain offering new to Yehovah. This is a new grain offering of the wheat harvest, which stands distinct from the omer or the sheaf of the barley harvest, which was presented at first fruits. Thus, this feast is described as the feast of harvest in Exodus 23, verse 16. In Exodus 32 and in Deuteronomy 16, it is specifically called the Feast of Weeks, and in Numbers 28, it is called the Day, the First Fruits. The word new here is chadash. It has been used but once so far in the Bible. It means fresh or new thing. It comes from the verb chadash, which signifies to renew or to repair. This new grain offering is then described next. Verse 17, you shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah. From the people's dwelling places, they were to bring two wave loaves. This is not to be assumed, as John Calvin and some other scholars state, that every house was to bring two loaves. Rather, two loaves total are brought, but they were to be made out of daily household food and not prepared from what was solely used for sacred purposes. In other words, it is the common which is being highlighted here. The word wave is tenufa. It means to wave in a waving motion. It comes from the word nuf, which was seen in verse 11 last week, which means to quiver. The waving would be to vibrate up and down or to rock to and fro. These two wave loaves were to be of two tenths, meaning two omers of an ephah. Verse 17 continues, they shall be of fine flour. The tenths were to be solet or processed grain, thus fine flour. Verse 17 continues, they shall be baked with leaven. This is the second of only two times in the entire Bible where an offering was to be made to the Lord with chametz or yeast. The other time is that of the Thanksgiving peace offering, which was found back in Leviticus 7, verse 13. Yeast or leaven in the Bible pictures sin. It is what causes bread to puff up, and sin is what causes man to puff up. The addition of yeast also causes corruption and putrefaction to occur. The same is true with sin and man. So why was leaven added to the Thanksgiving offering? And why is it added to this one? They are, after all, to be presented to the Lord. Well, as I know you remember the details of the Thanksgiving offering perfectly, I don't need to explain it. But for those who may not have heard that sermon, the reason for offering leaven was that it was an acknowledgement that the Lord accepts such an offering despite man's sin nature. The Lord will not turn away an offering despite that sin nature in him. He will not turn it away because of thanks even from a fallen, sin-filled man. Now, for the second and last time in the Bible, 
An offering with leaven is brought before the Lord. Therefore, this must have something to do with sin in man as well. That is the pictorial meaning, and it will be explained a little bit more later. But for the feast itself, it may also have been to teach the people a lesson about the Lord's blessing. At the Passover, no yeast was added. The reason is specifically stated that the people departed in haste and didn't have time to leaven their bread. Here the people are not in haste, but they're in rest. The harvest is ended, and they are having a feast before the Lord in relaxed gratitude for what he has provided. Verse 17 continues, they are the firstfruits to the Lord. The word here for firstfruits is bikorim. It's not the same as the word translated as firstfruits in the feast of firstfruits back in verse 9 through 14. There the word was rashit. This word comes from bakar, meaning properly to burst the womb. Thus, firstborn, and therefore bikarim would be the hasty fruits, or those which ripen first. They stand for the whole of the crop which follows. What is to be understood here is that the wheat harvest by this time is almost completed, and therefore the presentation of these loaves, though it close to the end of the harvest cycle, are representative of the entire harvest cycle. This day of Pentecost is a day representative of the entire harvest. Verse 18, And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year, without blemish, one young bull and two rams. For this same feast, instead of one young bull and two rams, Numbers chapter 28 says, two young bulls and one ram. No explanation for the change is given. Because of this, some scholars see that error has crept into the text. That's not likely with something so obvious, especially when this feast was celebrated year by year by year. What this means is that these offerings were distinct from those in the book of Numbers. The ones here belong to the loaves themselves. The ones in Numbers are for the day of the feast itself. Thus, there is a total of these special offerings on this day of 14 lambs, three young bulls, and three rams. The reason for giving these numbers separately was because in Numbers, the feast was observed as required, but only after they entered the land of promise would the offerings mandated here be made, because they accompany that which comes from the produce of the ground. For the offering with the loaves, there are first seven kebes, or lambs. The word comes from an unused root meaning to dominate. These are bene shana, or sons of the first year, implying innocence. And they are to be without blemish. Also, there was one par ben bakar, or bull, son of oxen. The word comes from parar, meaning to defeat. Bakar means to seek out. Also, there were to be two rams. The Hebrew for that is ayil, which indicates strength. Verse 18 continues, They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings. These animals were to be offered as a burnt offering to the Lord. Along with them were to be the standard grain and drink offerings explained in previous sermons. All of those details, if you remember any of them, point directly to Christ in his work. Verse 18 continues, An offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Together, the sum of these offerings were to be raised up to the Lord as a reach nechoach la Yehovah, or as a sweet aroma to the Lord. The word reach comes from the word ruach, which gives the sense of acceptance. The Lord smells and is pleased. The word nechoach gives the sense of that which is quieting or tranquilizing. It comes from nuach, which means to rest. 
verse 19, then you shall offer one kid of the goats as a sin offering. Along with the burnt offerings was to be a sayir izim, or kid of the goats. This was for a sin offering. The sayir was also the sin offering of the people on the Day of Atonement. The word izim is derived from azaz, meaning to prevail. Verse 19 continues, And two male lambs of the first year is a sacrifice of a peace offering. These two lambs are the same animals as the seven lambs of the burnt offering of verse 18. They are to be made a part of the peace offering as is next described. Verse 20, the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord with the two lambs. These two lambs were to be waved before the Lord together at the same time as the leavened loaves of bread, which were offered as first fruits. The symbolism here is absolutely marvelous to contemplate. Verse 20 continues, They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Both the waved lambs and the leavened bread of the first fruits were considered Kodesh La Yehovah, or holy to the Lord, and they were reserved for the consumption of the priest alone. The word priest here is singular. Normally, only the breast and shoulder of the peace offerings was for the priests, and the offerer would receive back the rest to eat. It was thus a mutual sharing of the meal. However, in this case, the lambs were deemed as holy to the Lord and consumed holy by the priest. As a point of clarity, the New King James Version, following the King James Version, is punctuated incorrectly in this verse. The entire verse should read, And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits for a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. Otherwise, the verse is obscure and it makes absolutely no sense at all. Go back and read either the King James or the New King James Version afterward and you'll say, I don't know what they were thinking. Verse 21, and you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you. To proclaim a holy convocation means to initiate the day with trumpet blasts. This is recorded in Numbers 10, verse 10. Although the trumpets have not yet been made, when they are, This is one of the specific purposes for them. As it says there, sounding the trumpets in this manner is to be a memorial for you before your God. On this particular day, there was to be more than just a gathering of the people. But like the first and the last day of unleavened bread, it was to be a holy convocation. This is then described with the words of verse 21 continuing, you shall do no customary work on it. Kal meleket abodah lo ta'asu. All work regular, no you shall do. Regular work was not to be conducted on this day. However, this is not a Sabbath. It is rather a day on which, according to Exodus 12, verse 16, food could be prepared on it. Other Sabbath regulations would likewise not be enforced. Instead, it would be to us like one of our holidays. Verse 21 continues, It shall be a statute forever in all your dwellings throughout your generations. The words chukat olam, or statute forever, signify to the vanishing point. They do not mean that we still must observe this feast. What it means is that until it was fulfilled in Christ, it was to be observed year by year. All Israel was to observe this feast at its appointed time. Verse 22, when you reap the harvest of your land, affixed to the end of the feast is this seemingly unrelated verse. It appears to have nothing to do with the feast at all, and it is a repeat of Leviticus 19, verse 9. 
It seems superfluous and cumbersomely placed here, and yet it is perfectly placed and remarkable as a verse, both in the Hebrew wording and in what it is pointing to. Ube kutsrekem et ketsir artsekem. And in your reaping harvest of your land, the verb for when you reap is second person plural, as is its corresponding noun, your land. The words are spoken to all of Israel. There is a time when they would reap their land's harvest. It is this time which is being highlighted. Verse 22 continues, You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap. Listen carefully and see if you can hear what is odd in these words. Lo tekale pe'at sadecha bekutrecha. Anyone? Really odd, isn't it? No, you shall make clean riddance of the edges of your field when you reap. For only the second and last time in the chapter, words in this verse suddenly become second person singular. No, shall you make clean riddance, meaning you singular, of the edges of your field, singular, when you reap, singular. The only other verse where this happens was in verse 3. When speaking of working six days, six days you shall do work, second person, singular. And it continues, verse 22 going on, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. And the gleaning of your harvest, singular, no, you shall gather, singular. Verse 22 goes on, you shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. To the poor and to the stranger, you shall leave, singular, them, plural, speaking of the things defined. This is the last time in the entire chapter that it speaks in the singular. The Lord goes from speaking to all of the people in the beginning clause to just one in the middle, and then he will close out by speaking to all. What's going on here? We'll try to figure it out before we finish. But for now... It's a reminder to the people that there is to be mercy upon the poor and the stranger. As Matthew Henry says, those who are truly sensible of the mercy they receive from God will show mercy to the poor without grudging. See the book of Ruth for this law actually being practiced. Verse 22 finishes with these words, I am the Lord your God. Ani Yehovah Elohekem. I am Yehovah your God. The noun your God is plural. The Lord is speaking to all of Israel, and so ends the instruction for the conduct of the feast. It is with this word of declaration that they have been instructed by Jehovah. Our second thought today, fulfilled in Christ. The first thing that we need to get is that there is a parallel to the timing of the first Passover to the giving of the law of Moses and with the day of first fruits, meaning the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the day of Pentecost. Each was an interval of 50 days. The Lord told Moses on the 48th day after their departure from Egypt that he would appear to all of the people on the third day. Thus he would appear to them on the 50th day. As the Lord appeared to the people on the 50th day and gave them the law, so the Holy Spirit came down upon the people in Jerusalem 50 days after Christ's resurrection. This is recorded in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were 
all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In type, then, the giving of the law prefigures the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost because of the 50-day interval. As there was no feast of firstfruits at the time of the Exodus, the feast is counted from the first day after the Passover rather than from the date set here in Leviticus. Both events are preceded by a 50-day period of learning from the Lord and anticipating a meeting with Him. This is why the calendar day for the Feast of Firstfruits is not given. It is based on a Sabbath. Whenever that Sabbath would occur, that's when it would come. What is important is the 50-day interval. It is on this day that a new grain offering was to be made As I said, the word new is chadash. It means fresh or new thing. It comes from the verb chadash, which signifies to renew or to repair. It is on this day that the spiritual reconnection to God, which was lost all the way back at the fall of man, was to be repaired, signified by this grain offering. From this grain offering, gathered from the common stores of the people, Two loaves of bread with leaven were to be presented to the Lord as a wave offering. The word wave signifies to move back and forth, coming from a word which means to quiver. This root was the same used to describe Christ's resurrection in the Feast of Firstfruits. As he became vibrant and alive again, we are spiritually made vibrant because of his work. It is the rebirth through the work of the Spirit. Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 2 with these words, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They were to be two loaves of fine flour, signifying that they are pure. And yet, they were to be baked with leaven. That there were two of them signifies a contrast. In the Bible, this is what the number two signifies. A contrast and yet a confirmation of something. There is day and there is night. They contrast and yet they confirm the duration of a single day. There is the Old Testament and there is the New. They contrast and yet they confirm the totality of the Word of God. There is Jesus, divine and human. They contrast, and yet they confirm that he is the God-man. In this, the two loaves are filled with yeast, and yet they are fine flour, and there are two of them. Fine flour signifies purity, grain which is processed and acceptable. Yeast signifies sin. The loaves are the redeemed of the Lord both Jew and Gentile, being presented as acceptable to him, signified by the sealing of the Spirit. This is actually seen in the writings of Paul. He twice mentions people as being firstfruits of an area known as Achaia. The first is Romans 16, verse 5, and the second is in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. First, he says, Greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 16, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia. Epineatus is a Jew. 
The name is the same as the Hebrew Judah, or praise. And so it is believed he used his Hebrew name when he was among the Hebrews and his Greek name among the Greeks, as so often happened in those days. Stephanus was a Gentile. More interestingly, the name Achiah, where both of them were from, has the same general meaning as the Hebrew name of Egypt. Egypt, or Mitzrayim, is a plural word which means double distress. Achiah means grief. These people are called the first fruits of grief. They are a picture of the redeemed out of the world of grief, just as Israel was redeemed out of Egypt or double distress. These then show the fulfillment of the two loaves of bread with the yeast being presented to the Lord at this feast, Jew and Gentile. Returning the first fruits to the Lord is a picture of the first fruits of the redeemed being noted as such here in the New Testament. As the day of Pentecost stands for the entire church age, these two are noted out of Jew and Gentile as examples of all, all people who would likewise be a part of this great harvest. As it said in verse 17, they are firstfruits to the Lord. The seven lambs of the first year for the burnt offering picture, Christ. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection, emblematic of his spiritually perfect work. The first year signifies innocence just as Christ was innocent. The lamb, or kabes, meaning to dominate, through his innocence, he dominated over sin and he destroyed it. Along with that was the par ben bakar, or bull, son of the oxen. Par comes from parar, meaning to defeat. Bakar comes from a word meaning to inquire or seek out. Christ defeated the devil, seeking out those he would redeem, just as the Lord is said to seek out his own sheep in Ezekiel chapter 34. The two ayil, or rams, indicating strength, shows that Christ's strength was expended for both Jew and Gentile. They reflect the total commitment of Christ, who offered all of his natural strength to his Father. He is fully sufficient to redeem all. These were returned to the Lord as a burnt offering. After this came the grain and drink offerings. They have been fully explained in past sermons. And so suffice it to say that every single detail of them points to the finished work of Jesus Christ. In short, and as a refresher concerning the drink offering, which we went through last week, it is poured out in its entirety to the Lord. No part of it was drank by priests or the people signifying that the people were partially excluded from the full blessings of what the Lord had for them while still under the law of Moses. This is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 9. I read this last week. I'll read it again. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus was speaking of the law and of grace. The new wine is the new dispensation of grace to come. The old wine was the dispensation of the law. If one were to introduce the new concept into the old, it wouldn't work because the two are incompatible. Putting new wine into new wineskins is emblematic of putting new doctrine into renewed minds. Only in Christ does man truly enter into God's victory and rest. It is a rest guaranteed by the sealing of the Spirit on Pentecost and for each believer since that very first day. All of these offerings were considered a reach nechoach la Yehovah, or a sweet aroma to the Lord. 
As I said, reach comes from ruach, which gives the sense of acceptance. The word nechoach gives the sense of that which is quieting or tranquilizing. It comes from nuach, meaning to rest. Through the work of Christ, we are accepted and the anger of the Lord is quieted. Now we enter his rest because of the work of Christ, who is our rest. Next described are the sin and peace offerings. The sin offering here is the sayir izim, or kid of the goats. As I said, this is the same as seen on the Day of Atonement. Rather than a specific sin, this is a general sin offering for the people. It again pictures Christ. Sayir is the hairy goat. Hair signifies awareness. It is an offering for the awareness of sin. Izim is derived from azaz, meaning to prevail. Those with an awareness of sin prevail over it in Jesus Christ. After that came the two lambs of the peace offering. They were waved with the two loaves of bread. The loaves picturing both Jew and Gentile sinners sealed with the Spirit of God. And the lambs picturing the innocent Christ who dominated over sin on their behalf, meaning both Jew and Gentile, are waved as one before the Lord. Together, not separately, they are made a peace offering. It is because of Christ that the one offering of both is termed Kodesh La Yehovah, or holy to the Lord. Think of it now. It's like us being offered on the altar before the Lord with Christ himself. That's the symbolism we're to see, Jew and Gentile. It is absolutely beautiful. This holy offering was reserved for consumption by the priest alone. That is why the word priest here is singular. It is an indication of the priesthood of believers. We have only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. And there is no mediator between Christ and man. The symbolism of the old shows us the folly of the supposed mediatorial priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. Christ is our priest, and together with him, we are made a peace offering to God. It was noted after these final offerings that the people were told this was a holy convocation on which they were not to work. Such a holy convocation is a reminder that Christ has done the work and that we enjoy the benefits of it. The preparing of food, which is allowed, can be equated with our spiritual growth. But all forms of work meriting salvation are accomplished solely by the Lord. With this, the rites of the Feast of Weeks were completed. But then came that obscure verse repeated from Leviticus 19 verse 9. Both of them bear the same odd pattern of being addressed in the plural and then moving to the singular. It cannot be error. The Hebrew is so obvious that anyone reading it would immediately see the change. And yet, other than one offhanded remark by one scholar that notes it is in the second person singular, the matter is completely ignored by people. But ignoring this leaves out any possibility of solving the enigma. What is happening here is that the Lord is speaking to the entire congregation. Imagine him waving his hand over all of them and saying, I want all of you to do this when you reap the harvest of the land. And then with the same breath, he stops and he points at one person and says, you, you shall not make a clean riddance of the edges of your field when you reap. And neither shall you gather any gleaning of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. And then he waves his hand to the entire congregation again and says, I am the Lord, your God. It is obvious to Israel that these words are intended for all at all times. 
but it's equally obvious that he is singling out a specific instance in conjunction with the Feast of Weeks and saying, I am giving you alone specific instructions. As this feast is pointing to the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and as this feast represents the entire church age and all who are included in it, then this must be referring to leaving something behind after the church age. The Lord is directing Christ concerning what is to be done after the rapture. The answer is found in Revelation chapter 7. At some point after the rapture of the church, there will be 144,000 Jews who will be sealed with the seal of the living God. It is they who will evangelize those left behind who will come looking for what is left over after the harvest is complete. They are the poor and the strangers who have come to glean from the merciful God who has instructed his son to leave behind a blessing for them. The natural question then is, because this is yet future, doesn't this mean that this portion of the law is not yet fulfilled? The answer is no. The feast is fulfilled in the giving of the Spirit, not in the rapture of the church and what comes after it. Those are merely a part of the feast, just as each new believer in Christ is. There is one fulfillment through Christ's work, and there is the continuing application of that fulfillment, just as there is one day of birth, but many birthdays. Or you could take the redemption of Israel out of Egypt. Israel was redeemed how many times out of Egypt? Once, that's right. But every single day, some Jewish person around the world says, we were redeemed from Egypt. It's ongoing in their lives, even to this day. This is why James, writing to the Jews of the end times, now that may sound a little funny. What are you talking about? James is writing to the Jews of the end times. Didn't he write it back in, uh, you know, the year 70 or something? Well, that's true. He did. But the structure of the Bible itself is a picture of redemptive history. We've got the Old Testament, we've got the Gospels, we've got Acts, we've got in Acts from Peter to Paul. And then we have the book of Acts starting in Jerusalem and ending in Rome. And where does the first epistle of Paul begin? In Rome. And you've got the epistles of Paul. And then after the epistles of Paul, all of a sudden you've got the book of Hebrews. It's once again written not to the church, but it's written to the Jews after the church age. And then you have the book of James written to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Okay, you've got the books of uh, Peter, which are written as well to the, or I'm sorry, James wrote to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And then the Peter wrote to the pilgrims of the dispersion. They're written as an end times word to the Jews of the world. Okay, James is writing to the Jews of the end times to get them to understand what has happened in Christ and then after the church age. Then he says to them of his own will, this is James writing to the Jews of the end times, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. They will be their own kind of first fruits being a part of this feast and yet a separate and distinct part nonetheless. It is also why the book of Revelation uses the same term for them in verse 14, verse 4. Here's what it says. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. The feast continues, though the feast is fulfilled. What we have seen is the truth that the law has been completed by Christ and that he is the fulfillment of it 
on our behalf. We can either trust in him and his finished work for us, or we can trust in the law to save us. To show us the severity of the choice, there's another pattern that goes along with the previous one of 50 days leading up to the giving of the law and the 50 days leading up to Pentecost. At the time of the giving of the law, the people of Israel rejected the Lord and built a golden calf, bowing down and worshiping it. At that time, Exodus 32 verse 28 tells us that about 3,000 of the people fell before the Lord for their violation of the law. However, at the time of the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, it says that those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Paul then provides us an explanation of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There he says that the letter, meaning the law of Moses, kills, but the Spirit gives life. Think about it now. God was giving us that pattern for a reason. At the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. The letter kills, but at the giving of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people were redeemed, coming to Jesus Christ. The Spirit gives life. Okay, it is the continuous lesson of the Bible. We can work our way towards God and be found guilty before the Lord, receiving our just condemnation, or we can trust in Christ, be granted His Spirit, and be saved. The choice is clearly laid out for us, and it is left up to us to decide which we will pursue. This is why we don't observe these ancient feasts anymore. They are fulfilled by Him. We are merely participants in this great unfolding drama of His beautiful work. Remember our text verse for today. So let no one judge you in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow. They're only a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. These feasts of the Lord are given to show us Christ and his work on our behalf. In him, we live in the substance, not in the shadow. If you're trying to find God's favor through shadowy rituals, obsolete dietary laws and spending your Saturday as the Jews of old did and failed, by the way, then you have put up a wall, a giganticus maximus wall between you and God. Tear it down and pass freely and without hindrance into the arms of Christ by receiving his completed work as your own. That's what God is asking you to do. He's not asking you to go back and observe these feasts. I can't tell you how many times I get emails from people I go to a church that observes the feasts of the Lord and they say that we have to observe a Sabbath and we can't eat pork and we can't do this. And is this true? No, it's absolutely not true. Not only is it not true, if you just pick up the book of Galatians, it's four chapters. I mean, it's only going to take you what? It's, maybe it's six chapters. Anyway, it's six chapters. Anyway, it's going to take you a total of 20 minutes to read the book of Galatians. And it could not be any clearer if you just simply read it slowly and methodically what Paul is trying to tell us. Do not reinsert the law of Moses. If you do, all you're doing is you're setting up a wall between you and God. It is a self-condemning act. Paul goes so far to say that if you allow yourself to be circumcised, and that is the preeminent sign of the old covenant, you want to be observing the law of Moses and you're not circumcised, you're not doing a very good job of it because that is the sign. Okay, he says, if you allow yourself to be circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. It's a self-condemning act to say, I'm going to ignore what God did in Christ, and I'm going to help him along. I know you did okay, God. Everything was okay with what Jesus did, and I'm, I thank you for it. 
but I know it wasn't enough and I've got to keep going and I got to keep working in order to please you. What a slap in God's face, what a dismissal of the glorious work of Jesus Christ, which is fully sufficient to save. 100% fully sufficient. And the same thing goes with loss of salvation churches. You can lose your salvation. I can't even imagine somebody that would teach something so absolutely perverse as that doctrine. Jesus Christ died to save us. You believe that, and Paul says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. It is a deposit, a guarantee that you will never lose that which he has given you. What a crummy guarantee if you can go ahead and do something to blow it and he takes it away from you. Plus, it shows you that it's not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible does not make mistakes. Once he says, this person has demonstrated the faith that I have said is necessary, he seals you and it is done forever. Not three ever, not two ever, not one ever, forever. It is done Okay, so please call on Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ. He is all glorious. He is God. He's not here to do an incompetent job of saving you or keeping you saved. He will do it, and he will see you through to a satisfactory end. This is our great God. This is our Lord Jesus. Our closing verse comes from Romans 8, 22 through 25. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Is anybody here thinking about that today? Eagerly awaiting the redemption of their body? I, you brought us into the service today with that thought. That's all I think about from day to day. Put me in bed for five days. Sorry, Dad walked in, what was it, uh, Tuesday. He opens the door and he looks in and I had a bucket there, and I'm sitting there like this. He says, can I take you to the hospital? I said, no, I'll be all right. It was echoing out of the bucket to him. I'll tell you, what a horrible week I had. The redemption of our body is something I absolutely look forward to. And if you're not looking forward to that, you've got a lot better body than I do. I'll tell you that. So we'll go on. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Boy, I hope you're all in the same boat with me today, persevering in that hope. Next week is Leviticus 23, it's verses 23 through 25. I've given this sermon a completely different title than you've ever seen on any Feast of the Lord series of sermons. That's because they use terms which I do not believe are correct. Lots of shouting on this day in Israel, the nation. It's entitled the Feasts of the Lord, the Memorial of Acclamation. That'll be our 40th Leviticus sermon. Most people call it Rosh Hashanah, or they call it the Feast of Trumpets. Never says the Feast of Trumpets, okay? It says uh, Yom Teruah, the Day of Acclamation. Teruah is a shouting. Now, it does go hand in hand. The trumpets were blown on that day. Then Rosh Hashanah simply means the first of the year. It's the beginning of the civil year in Israel. Neither one of those is really incorrect, but I just don't think it's good terminology. I'll tell you this. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? We've got a poem today called The Giving of the Spirit. 
And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, the day when death is defeated, from that day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, according to this word, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of an ephah, according to this word. They shall be a fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are first fruits to the Lord. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs of the first year without blemish, one young bull and two rams. They shall be as a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering and their drink offerings. An offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord, such shall be these profferings. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats as a sin offering, so you shall do. And two male lambs of the first year as a sacrifice of peace offering, as I instruct to you. The priest shall wave them with bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs, as I have said, they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest, according to this word. And you shall proclaim on the same day that it is a holy convocation to you without alterations. You shall do no customary work on it. It shall be a statue forever in all your dwellings throughout all your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners, so I attest of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God, your feast day arranger. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, for having fulfilled this feast. You poured out your spirit on the sons of men, upon Jew and Gentile, upon the greatest and the least. All who call on you are at that moment born again. The Spirit is given a divine guarantee. We have the surety of God upon us sealed. Eternal salvation is granted. From condemnation, we are free. Marvelous salvation, we are brought in as crops from the field. Thank you, O glorious God, for this that you have done for us. To give us new life, you sent your only begotten, our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful, wonderful example of your great glory and your mercy upon the sons of men by coming and by dying on a cross, being our first fruits resurrected from the grave, and then allowing us to participate in that 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, when we as human beings receive the gift of your spirit, that spiritual reconnection, which was lost at the very fall of man. And since that time, how many people have come and have shared in that marvelous wonder, which you have given to the people of the church each one believing by faith in the work that you accomplished and they're given your spirit. They're sealed and their destiny is changed forever. An eternity of life with you instead of an eternity of separation and pain and anguish will be given great glory in the heavens to see you and to share in what you have for us all for the ages of ages. And it's proven by the gift that you have given us right now. Thank you for that. And Lord, we pray for the week ahead. We have a uh, memorial service to do for our brother Paul this week, and we would pray that you would help people to get better so that they could attend that. And we also pray for those who are sick and that aren't doing so well today, that you would be with them and help give them strength in their bones and comfort during this difficult time that they're facing. And Lord, we thank you for the chance to have the Lord's table and to meet there and to share in your goodness and to know that it was all done to redeem fallen man. Thank you, Lord God. We thank you, and we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.